You know, when, when one of the elders of the church says that they like to listen to Scottish preachers, I'm, I think you've you got to take notice for, for job security's sake. And so this morning I really need to confess something to you that I've been, I've been hiding for coming up on four years now. It's, I'm Scottish. <laughs> and it is a privilege to be here with you this morning to have the opportunity to study the Word of the Lord this morning and to uncover some of the doubts that some of you may be experiencing. <laughs> All right, I'm done with that. But, you know, just when one of the elders says it, good grief, you got to take notice, right? Well, I want to start with a question. That wasn't in my notes. But uh, I want to start with a question this morning. Have any of you ever been distracted? Just show of hands if you've ever been distracted. You're either raising your hand or you're distracted right now. So the, I, like to have, uh, I like to have breakfast with my good friend Steve Corp. Many of you know Steve. He's the minister over at Southern Hills. Good godly man, good friend of mine. And this past Thursday morning, we were having breakfast. Atticus was with me, and uh, we were enjoying our time together. We like to encourage each other in our faith and, and just enjoy some nice food at Tasty House. It's where we always go, never anywhere else. It's always Tasty House. That's a different story. I love it. But um, over breakfast, we, we like to talk about some of the things that, that we can pray for each other for and, and things like that. And, and as breakfast got there, I was praying for the meal. And we had been talking, and so I, was, I wasn't just praying for the meal. I was also praying for my good friend, Steve. And, and uh, I was also trying to keep track of my son, who during the prayer was trying to get up out of his high chair and stand up. And so th this is what my prayer sounded like for Steve. He said, Dear God, please give Steve the strength that he needs to sit on his bottom like a big boy. I don't know if you've ever been distracted before, but I have been a time or two, and, uh, and uh, I, I was grateful that Steve knew exactly what was going on and that he's prayed things like that before. But here's my, here's my point in bringing all that up this morning. Sometimes it's easy to be distracted, especially on Sunday mornings. You've had a million things going on so far today. You had to get kids up. You had to get ready. You had to do chores. You had to figure out how the rain was affecting your chores. You're trying to figure out how the rain's going to affect the rest of your day. How much more is it going to rain? You know, some of you are starting to wonder that. Is it ever going to stop? And, and I'm just going to ask you this morning, would you please fight that distraction as hard as possible? Because here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be digging deep. We're going to be engaging our brains in a profound way this morning. We're going to be answering the question, how do I know God really exists? And so if, if for the next three hours you would just fight that distraction as hard as possible, I'd be really grateful, okay? All right, so um, how do we know that God really exists? This is a question that's going to become more and more important for all of us to have an answer to. Um, popular popular uh, academics like Carl Sagan have uh, statements now that they've written in books that are widely accepted. Here's one from Carl Sagan. He says, The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Carl Sagan is a well-respected scientist. And he leaves no room for a creator or anything supernatural. More recently, Richard Dawkins, maybe many of you know him, he wrote a book, he calls it The God Delusion. 
And in it he says this, the factual premise of religion or the God hypothesis is untenable. God almost certainly does not exist. So how can we be confident as people who got up early on a Sunday morning to come to church? How can we be confident that God actually does exist? Do you know how you'd reply if somebody asked you, how do you know God exists? Do you know how you'd answer that question? If somebody walked up to you today and said that, how would you answer? So I'm going to preach this sermon um, with an understanding that you're going to fall in one of two places this morning. Maybe you're struggling with that question. Maybe you're going, how do I know that God exists? And I'm going to preach to you. Or maybe you're going, I know that God exists. I've lived my whole life that way, and I'm not turning back on it, but maybe I don't have a good answer. I'm preaching this sermon for you so that way you'll have an answer for somebody who might ask you that question. So I understand that this sermon is going to hear uh, two different sets of ears this morning, and I think both are equally important. Okay, It's a simple question. How do I know God's real? But it's an incredibly challenging one, especially, especially if we've been a Christian all of our life and we've never really had to stop and think about what we believe. Well, as we continue in our second installment of the Room for Doubt series, I want to address that increasingly common question, one that I believe is going to trickle down and be a prominent one in our communities, in our lives, and on the lips of our friends and neighbors and relatives, and maybe even in your mind. How do I know God is real? Why do we believe in God? Why should I believe in a God? Modern academia has been working hard at answering the question by saying you shouldn't. You shouldn't believe there's a God. It's common in popular books. It's common on social media. It's common on their blogs, in their magazine articles, in their lectures. And even at events like the Reason Rally, which is held annually in Washington, D.C., to say you don't have any reason to believe there's a God. There's a great demand for Christians to give an account for our belief in God. There's a greater demand now than there ever has been. Is our faith just a hand-me-down tradition that we picked up from mom and dad? Is it based on wishful thinking or a blind leap of faith into a set of beliefs for which there is no evidence? Or can we, as the Apostle Paul said, give an accounting of the hope that is in us? to anyone who might ask. Before we jump in and begin to answer that question, I want to tell you, I want to tell you something that isn't going to work. I want to give you an answer that's not going to cut it for somebody who's skeptical. And, and, and I want to encourage you as somebody who is sorting out an answer to this question in your own mind, I want to encourage you to not default to this answer. Sure, it's easy. Right? Sure, it, it may work in my mind or it may work in your mind, but somebody who's struggling with faith, this isn't going to cut it. Here's the answer you can't give them. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That might settle it for some, but for somebody who needs to know a response like that, it's only going to frustrate them and lead them further away from God. Here's a principle. Here's a principle for us. If we want to help our friends and neighbors and loved ones with their doubts and questions, we need to start where they are, not 
where we are. Everybody say that with me. We have to start where? Not where? Does that make sense to you? The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And we walk away patting ourselves on the back for a job well done will not lead anybody to Christ, especially if they don't believe in the truth of the Bible. But that's why we started with the truth of the Bible last week, right? So we need to start where they are, not where they are. Yes, there's an important place for sharing what the Bible says, but we're usually going to be more persuasive if we appeal to resources that they already trust. Things like science, and reason and personal experience. And I don't want you to fear because there's a lot that science says that points to a creator. Right? So we're going to look at several of those reasons this morning. And I want you to leave feeling confident that God exists because of science, because of reason, because of personal experience. So let's start with some science this morning. Everybody put on your scientific cap. Hope you brought your pocket protectors because we're going to do some science, okay? The first reason to believe in God is based on a branch of science called cosmology. Cosmology is the study of the origin, the structure, and the development of the physical universe. Uh, This reason uh, that we can believe God from a cosmology standpoint is called the cosmological argument. If you want to be really scientific, the Kalam cosmological argument. In order to explain, I want to show you a short video this morning. Uh, It's put together by Dr. William Lane Craig. He is a powerful and uh, a really brilliant um, um, apologist. He's a defender of the Christian faith. He has a ministry called Reasonable Faith, and, and what his ministry says is, hey, a belief in Jesus is not old-fashioned. It's not out of date. It is a reasonable thing, and I think he does a great job of presenting the cosmological argument. So let's watch, and fair warning, uh, in your outline, there are a few fill-in-the-blanks from the video. That's a a brief rundown of the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, I I think it's compelling. If you want more information on the cosmological argument or on uh, William Craig's ministry, I I just encourage you to go to their website, reasonablefaith.com, and there are plenty of excellent resources there. Um, But I want to just summarize what we watch. Let's highlight those three main points. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Things don't just pop into existence. Science operates on this principle um, that every event requires a cause. Einstein declared the, the scientist is possessed by a sense of universal causation, that everything has a cause. And this principle agrees with our repeated experiences that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Well, then we say, okay, if everything that begins to exist has a cause, we ask, did the universe begin to exist or did it always exist? Well, almost the entire scientific community, as we know it today, acknowledges the fact that the universe came into existence at some point. Cosmologists refer to it now as the Big Bang. Did you know, though, that when the Big Bang Theory was first proposed, it was discarded, it was shunned by the academic community because it sounded too much like biblical creationism? 
Albert Einstein rejected the idea of a Big Bang because he said, no, no, that sounds too much like the Bible. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. They believe that the universe began to exist. What if science is simply pointing to the same event in scientific language instead of biblical language? So what we've seen, first of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And two, the universe began to exist. This leads us to a necessary and logical conclusion. The universe has a cause. The universe has a cause. I call him God. From a Christian point of view, this sounds an awful lot like a compelling scientific description of a biblical doctrine that theologians have proclaimed for centuries. It's called creation ex nihilo, or literally, God created out of nothing. The very first words of Genesis tell us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why, as we learned in the video, Einstein and many other thinkers initially rejected the idea. They didn't like the theological implications that came with it. It gave too much support to the idea of a supernatural or a theological creation. Well, I think that we should follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I think that in this case, the evidence leads us to a Creator whom I call God. In spite of what many people say, science is not at odds with a belief in God. It is a perfectly reasonable thing to have. On the contrary, science actually provides compelling evidence for God's existence. So I think you should follow the evidence wherever it leads. And just maybe, it'll lead you to God. I want to look at another um, form of evidence that we have, another reason that you can believe in the existence of God. It's the fine-tuning that exists in the universe that points us towards an intelligent designer or maybe an intelligent fine-tuner. I've said in sermons before that I'm a car guy. I like cars, especially cars that go very, very fast. Okay? There is a, a company um, called Callaway. And they customize Corvettes. They take very fast Corvettes and they make them ridiculously fast Corvettes. In fact, there is a car called the Callaway C9 Twin Turbo that will go 0 to 60 in 1.9 seconds. I, I don't know what that must feel like getting hit by a dump truck when you take off, but I don't know. Um, so that car is incredibly fine-tuned. They take a car that is already tuned very highly, and they tune it very specifically to optimize it for speed. There are no creature comforts in that car. It's all about speed and performance. And we see very similar things in the universe. It is designed very, very specifically. Way further down than a Callaway C9 twin turbo Corvette would be. 
Now, there are all sorts of things in the universe that we could point to. Uh, maybe it's foliage growing on a hillside or, or seeing a deer or a fox or maybe even a nice bass. I like a nice bass, but I, I love seeing what I can see. I love seeing animals. Uh, the trees are starting to blossom. We have, some, uh, we have some cherry trees down at the house, and I love watching those. I love seeing a storm roll in. I look, love looking at all the stars in the night sky. Uh, I can kind of resonate with King David. And when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And here's the deal. This creation that we live in is finely tuned by God, our creator. Here's what's amazing. Evidence shows that this didn't happen on its own. Right? This, this wasn't an accident. Okay? The Big Bang Theory, uh, as currently espoused by science, is going to say that this, this created out of nothing, by chance, no God involved. I'm going to say there's no way. There's no way that's the case. Everything is too exact and too precise. Everything's too dialed in. I want to give you an example of this fine-tuning that exists in the universe. Physicists have discovered that there are four fundamental forces in nature. We're not going to go into all four of them, but one of the four is gravity. If the force of gravity were changed, this is put on your pocket protector and your nerd hat for just a moment, okay? If the force of gravity were changed by just one part in a novum decelian, that's a number. One part in a novum decelian, by the way, a novum decelian looks like this, then life would be virtually impossible anywhere in the universe. Uh, a novum decelian is uh, one followed by 60 zeros, just in case you were wondering. If, if, if the force of gravity were off by just that much, life anywhere in the universe would be virtually impossible the odds are that small for just one area to be so precisely tuned to support life. Imagine how small the odds become when you include all the other factors that have to be fine-tuned to a razor's edge of precision. And there are a lot more. I'm going to give you just a few examples. You can run them down if you'd like. Or if you want to come back tonight for our Bible study, we can talk more about those there. Uh, how close the earth is to the sun is incredibly precise. If we get just a little further in either direction, it's too hot and we burn up. If we get just a little further in the other direction, it is freezing. Antarctica, everywhere. How close the earth is to the sun is incredibly precise. The angle of the earth, the axis that it rotates on, if it's off even a quarter of a degree, life on earth is unsupportable. The composition of oxygen and nitrogen in our atmosphere is incredibly precise. The amount of water that exists on earth, there's nothing like it in the known universe. And the composition and function of each of our 37 trillion cells. Just to name a few. What's especially remarkable is that these considerations have influenced skeptics. Not just Christian believers. There was an atheist cosmologist, his name was Fred Hoyle, and he said this. He said that, that it looks like a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. This is an atheist cosmologist. He said, it looks like a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as we know it. 
Anthony Flew, he was one of the most prominent atheists of the 20th century. He rejected his atheism at age 81 because of this kind of evidence, and he shocked the academic world when he announced, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. See, this kind of evidence doesn't just reaffirm Christian beliefs. It converts people who are skeptical and against it. Dr. Paul Davies was one of the leading physicists, and he's one of the leading physicists and cosmologists of our day. He puts it this way, I cannot believe that our existence in the universe is a mere cork of fate. We are truly meant to be here. It's quite a statement from someone who doesn't claim to believe in a personal God. So the arguments stand. The amazing convergence of these many examples of fine-tuning in the universe, each independently set to precise values, they point powerfully to the existence of an astonishingly intelligent and powerful creator, a fine-tuner who set everything just so. Let me put it into a little bit of perspective for you, how unlikely it is that all of these things happened on accident. Uh, does anybody know what this hand is called in poker? Just go ahead and shout it out if you know what it's called. <laughs> None of you want to admit to playing cards because you're at church. That's what's happening this morning, right? <laughs> it's a royal flush. I'll take this one for you, okay? It's a royal flush. You're forgiven if you play cards, all right? Luke's not here. He would have definitely known. It's a royal flush. You get a 10, a jack, a queen, a king, and an ace all in the same suit. Do you know what the chance of getting a royal flush is in a hand? It's the most rare and most powerful hand in a game of poker. It's about 1 in 650,000. 649,740 to get a royal flush. Pretty rare. But to get two royal flushes in a row the chances go from 1 in 650,000 to 1 in 422 billion. Imagine getting a dozen royal flushes in a row. It wouldn't take long to conclude that somebody was fixing the deck. It's too improbable to be an accident. If the world we live in happened by accident, it'd be like getting a royal flush every time you were dealt a hand. Isaiah chapter 40 puts it this way. This is God saying, To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of His great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Then in verse 28, Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of all the earth. He never grows weary or weak. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. That's who I believe created the universe that I live in. The precise order of everything that we see is just too hard to ignore. So if you're struggling to believe, I want to encourage you to look at the evidence and go where it points you. Because I think it'll point you to God. Let's look at a third argument. This, one, this one's more of an everyday reason, right? Our sense of morality points us to a God as the moral lawgiver. Our sense of morality. 
I want you to think about this. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but each of us, every one of us, has an internal standard of morality. Each of us has an internal standard of morality, and that points to a set point of objective truth that everybody accepts. Let me give you an example. Should you murder, yes or no? Uh, I didn't prep you guys for that answer, did I? Should you steal, yes or no? Why do you think this? It's bad, yeah. And and nobody had to tell you it was bad, right? You just kind of know that it's bad. We all have an internal standard of morality that points to an objective standard of truth. It exists above us and outside of us. It's not just human opinion or preference. We don't create it ourselves. But why should we think there's such a thing as an absolute morality? Well, for one thing, why, maybe you never thought about this, why would humans invent a moral code that we can never quite fulfill? Right? If we invented morality, wouldn't we make it just a little bit more attainable? If we invented morality, we wouldn't, wouldn't we just say, well, lying isn't too bad? Because it, the way that morality is created, we can never live up to the standards of morality. So why would we invent a moral code that would frustrate us for our entire lives? Well, maybe it's because we didn't invent it. And we can't get rid of it. The Bible refers to this as our conscience. In addition, um, our understanding of conscience and right and wrong shows that we believe there is a firm standard of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis comments on this in the opening section of his book, Mere Christianity. I know that uh, one of our classes has recently studied this book, so maybe this will sound familiar to you. C.S. Lewis says this, Wherever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and a real wrong, you will find that same man going back on it a moment later. He may break his promise to you and claim there's no right or wrong, but if you break a promise to him, he will say, it's not fair. It seems then that we're forced to believe in a real right and a real wrong. People may be mistaken about right and wrong. We may make mistakes in regard to right and wrong just as sometimes people do math incorrectly. But this is not a matter of taste or opinion, just the same as the multiplication table isn't. Two times two is still four, and right and wrong are still right and wrong. Lewis is right about this, I believe. Basic morality is not a a matter of personal opinion, right? Now, we can prefer chocolate ice cream. You'll be wrong. But you can prefer chocolate ice cream over vanilla, but morality is not like that. Uh, Forgive this strong example, but if an adult chooses to physically assault a small child... We don't regard it as exercising personal preference. It's wrong. Now some people can argue that, that our moral sense is created by our culture, and, and to a small degree, sure. 
right? In some states, your moral right and wrong is influenced by what you see around you. For example, you might feel free to drive um, 65 on an interstate, and in another state, 80. But we do, as a matter of fact, have a moral sense that goes beyond culture. For example, I want you to consider what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. Does that transcend culture? Can we agree that what they're doing is wrong, even though they say that their religion commands them to kidnap people and sell them into slavery, to rape and to murder? Does that mean that what they're doing, well, hold on, no, they, they culturally say that's okay. Is that all of a sudden all right? No. That's why the rest of the world agrees that that's wrong. What about Adolf Hitler? His final solution was to eliminate the Jewish race. It was embraced by the Nazi party. Does that make it culturally okay? The world was morally justified in condemning those actions. The fact is our, our moral criticism, our understanding of an absolute moral right and wrong is above any one culture and what any one culture might say is right or wrong. But where does it come from? If we didn't invent it, if it transcends the realms of culture and politics, if it's something that we can't get away from, where does it come from? Could it be that God knit those moral standards into us while we were still in our mother's womb? Could it be that God knit those moral standards, that morality, that conscience? Could it be that God knit that into us? certainly squares with what the Bible says on the subject. Romans 2.15 says, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences, also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. I believe that God's given me a moral code and I believe that He's given one to each of us. and We can embrace it we can also ignore it. I want to encourage you to embrace it. Because here's a simple truth. The more you ignore it, the easier it gets to ignore it. The more you ignore it, the easier it gets to ignore it. And so maybe you ignore it while you tell a lie. And then you have to ignore it while you tell a second lie to support that first lie. And then you have to tell three lies to support the first two. And on and on it goes all of a sudden, your moral understanding, that, that understanding of moral right and wrong, it's not just weakened, it's cauterized. It's desensitized. It doesn't exist. I believe that God's given us a moral code, each of us, and I believe that we should listen to it. I believe that the existence of that understanding of a moral right and wrong is compelling evidence for the existence of God. Well, there's evidence uh, from three arguments we've looked at. I'm going to just summarize them. 
um, a God who started this immense universe. I believe in that. I believe there's a God who started this immense universe. I believe that there's a God who fine-tuned this universe to incredibly precise standards, and I believe that there's a God who is perfectly good, who created us with a deeply embedded sense of morality. And, you know, these arguments are powerful. These arguments didn't originate with me. Apologists all over the world have been using these arguments, and there's one in particular. Um, Dr. Craig, as we looked at earlier, used these three examples and many others in a debate with Frank Zindler, who is a prominent atheist, and they held the debate in a church in Chicago, and 8,000 people attended this debate. Debate was on the question of whether or not to believe in the existence of God. Dr. Craig used a form of these arguments and, again, many more. At the end of the event, they took a vote. When the numbers were tabulated and everybody had been counted, 97% of those in attendance believed, said that the case was stronger for the existence of God. Now, we might accept, expect that. They're saying, <laughs> you held that debate in a church, isn't it a little stacked? Hundreds indicated on their ballots that they were not Christians. 82% of those non-Christians said that the case for God was stronger. And by the end of the night, 47 of those people became Christians. The evidence for God is strong and it's convincing. You can be confident that God exists and that he loves you and that he wants you to follow him. But I want to look briefly at one more reason, one that flows out of our everyday experiences. Here's the fourth reason you can believe that God exists. Our personal experiences point to a God. Our personal experiences point to a God. We've looked at some pretty heady evidence today, and, and I don't know, maybe you'll feel confident um, using some of these ideas in a conversation with somebody, but I want to suggest that this one may be the most compelling evidence for the existence of God. We can look somebody in the eye when they say, how do you know God exists? We can look them in the eye and we can say, he changed my life. He changed my life. I'm perfectly comfortable giving that answer to somebody because I know what my life was like. And I know that my God changed my life. And I know that he continues to change my life. I spend time with him every day. And sometimes he intervenes in my life and he tells me that, hey, you're tracking on the wrong path here, boy. And sometimes he says, all right, keep heading this direction. Kind of reminds me of the words of the old hymn. I don't think it was an accident that we sang it this morning. I certainly didn't tell the worship team that, that uh, this was part of my sermon. But uh, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Now, the other considerations we've looked at are important, but genuine personal experience is difficult to dismiss. That's why the Apostle Paul appealed to people that way. In Acts chapter 26, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman appealed to people that way. Come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. John chapter 9 is another example of this. So if you're a Christian, talking about God's influence in your life can be a powerful part of your answer to people who ask you, how do you know God exists? 
But I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged as you face that question because in the moment, it'll be disorienting. In the moment, you'll feel a little tongue-tied. You won't exactly know how to answer. You're not going to recall all of the things we talked about easily. I don't, okay? I want you to be encouraged by something, though, when you have that conversation, when you get asked that question. You don't just have your personal experience on your side. Science points to the existence of a creator God. Reason points to the existence of a creator God. Morality points to the existence of a creator God. He is the God who created us. He is the God who loves us. And he is the God who is worthy of our worship. If you're a Christian, you can stand confidently on those truths. If you're not, I urge you to look at them seriously and follow the evidence wherever it leads. I bet the evidence will lead you to a belief in God and to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have existed since before existence. And I don't understand that, but I'm okay with that. Because if I could understand everything there is to know about you, then somehow I think that would diminish who you are. So God, I thank you that you exist beyond my understanding. But I thank you that the whole realm of creation testifies to your existence. God, I pray that you would help me to live my life aware of your holiness, aware of your existence, aware of your care for your creation. And God, for any of my friends in the room this morning who may struggle with believing that you exist, would you challenge them to look at the evidence, God, and would you work in their lives for your glory? God, would you prepare all of us to answer this question and the ones that come before us every day? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.